You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the For Love of the Land Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Each week, we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common. They all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home. All right. Thank you guys for joining us for another For Love of Land podcast. Uh, we're excited for this week. We have another guest from North Carolina. Yeah. And I know that Matt and I are both excited to sit back and share some conversations about his connection to the land. Well, you know what's cool, too, is is uh, we know this gentleman and have come to know him, you know, the past few months. But this isn't as many conversations as we've, ha- as we've had with him. This isn't one that we've had, like, that full story of, like, man, just break it down. Like, tell me your connection with the land. So this will be kind of a learning experience for us, too. So who knows what we're going to learn. He's an interesting feller. So... There's one story we're definitely going to have to ask him to share. He shared yeah. it with us. He shared it with us before, but we're definitely going to have to uh, hear it Bring again because it it's so funny. <laughs> so, Tyler, are you there? I am. All right, I awesome. Am. We've got Tyler Ross here, and Tyler, if you can share with us your title and what you're currently doing. So, uh, my name's Tyler Ross. I am the district director for a local. Uh, Soil and Water Conservation District in Western North Carolina. Perfect. Fantastic. So, Western North Carolina, Asheville area, or your Boone? Yeah. Where? Okay. Just, just west of Asheville. Gotcha. Um, yeah. You so, big it, national right fish. Asheville. Yeah. Asheville. Vol. It's Vol. not Ville. It's Vol. Vol. In in the Southern Appalachians. Yeah. <laughs> still looking for the Appalachian Mountains. I don't know where those are. <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 further north, ain't it? Yeah, it's it's a lot further farther north. Yeah. <laughs> that's up there where they refer to your mom's sister or dad's sister as aunt. Yeah, that's exactly same right. general region of the country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, so long long time resident there. Yeah, lifelong. Wow, awesome. Three years at the helm. <laughs> that's wonderful. Born and raised. I think uh, <clears throat> I want to hear more on your. On your current duties, um, I know that you have a lot to do with farmers and and people out there who are working the land and are involved in in basically making an income off the land. But um, you have a similar background as from as, as Matt and I do. So, kind of walk us through what when was what was childhood ties to the land? Were you on a farm, raised around a farm? What was that like? Uh, no, I grew up. Uh out in the county um off of a highway called old number 20 and uh, we didn't we weren't on a farm in fact we were actually uh um lived in a i guess the early 90s or late 80s version of a development there was us my grandmother across the road and a couple neighbors up the road not much i remember when we paved our road i was like 12 or something but we had a, a crap ton of woods all around me and um uh, I remember uh, when I was young, This you guys are going to love this, my mom, God love her, <laughs> was not a fan of a TV in the house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, 
So all of all of my childhood was spent reading from a very very early age, and ah. there used to be these books called the Young Americans, and it was like you know like I had it. The books went from Chris. Christmas Addicts to uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, Davy Crockett and all. I was gonna say, I I think I know what you're talking about. I was thinking like uh, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Like George Washington has got all that. Yeah. Well, that was what me and my brother, um, my younger brother, would read, mm-hmm. and we would talk about that. So then when we'd go out in the woods, you know, we that would be what we pretended. And then when we were, um, you know, growing up or. I guess towards the end of elementary school, before we went to middle school, um, we were reading like a lot of C.S. Lewis and Lord of the Rings and, um, you know, Tolkien and yeah. The Hobbit and in Lord of the Rings. You know, he talks a lot about uh, the fires of industry, you know, destroying the landscape and all these different things. And it was a, a, a culmination of all those things. Like I always wanted to be outside. I always wanted to be on the landscape. But mm-hmm. um, it was my fascination with, Davy Crockett um, and his hunting exploits, that really was what I always, when I went outside, that's what I thought about and I wanted to do. So I begged my mom from the time I was five until I was 16 for a, a pellet gun or a 22 or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my mom was not, she did not think that was a good idea. And she was right because I was... <laughs> I like just now at 33. I think I just now reached the level of maturity to where I can own a pellet gun. <laughs> um, because, because my, you know, I had a temper and I was angry and I was shot my little brother and my older sisters and yeah. you know all these people and, um, you know it it was I was always out in the woods trying to pretend to do that and anytime we had chores that would come up like my grandmother lived across the road and I would go and work with her and she was the toughest human being I've ever met in my life. Mm. Um, and she just, I mean, it was awesome. You, learning so much from grandmama, um, tending plants. Um, we had a garden and stuff like that. And it's just, it always like kind of stuck with me. I mm-hmm. should say it's, it's all, you know, it's primal. It's a part of you. And sure. You know, it's just one of those things. And I remember growing up doing that and, uh, in church, one of the big things I'd always go back to was in the book of Genesis where, we're given domain over the birds of the air and everything that walks and everything that swims and the land. And, you know, it talks about the creation, the whole creation story. And it's just always been something that's always stuck with me. So, you know, when I got into middle school and high school, started getting involved in FFA, um, I still didn't have a firearm. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, one of my uncles actually had a BB gun. He kept it at his house for me. And my cousin actually lives on that piece of land now. And uh, I would go up there. And get the BB gun and go and chase squirrels, probably some other birds that I really wish I hadn't shot now. <laughs> Knowing what they are now, I know exactly Knowing, what you're talking about. Yep. You, know what I mean? uh, you just saw pretty colors. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, Man, that thing makes a cool noise. Yeah. Yeah. Pew, you know. Uh, yeah. You know what though? Let's let's think about it like this. You know? Do you remember how uh, Teddy Roosevelt, whenever he went to Africa and he went on those big hunts? To basically gather specimens for the, I think it was the Smithsonian. Yeah, and that, that's what we were doing—the child version. It was exactly. a, it was like a hunt to really inspect and preserve and look at these birds that we'd never seen mm-hmm. up close. Yeah, that's exactly what we were doing. Yeah, for for me, it was it was just identifying the European starling as an invasive, and me just eradicating. 
<laughs> See, we didn't we didn't have a lot of those when I was growing up. Really? Like, I don't remember seeing a lot of them. Huh. Um, Did you w- have them, Tyler? Because I I was in Virginia, and you're just straight south. No, we didn't. Uh, not that I saw. I really? saw a lot of blue jays and a lot of bluebirds. <laughs> it was blue. Yeah. It was getting a bead we, drawn we, on we it. Couldn't get, we couldn't. Here in Missouri, yeah. the, the bluebird is our state mm-hmm. bird, so it's illegal. You knew that. Knew that. Never shot yeah. a bluebird. Um, but there was, you know, that, that, that childhood boy, I guess, curiosity. curiosity yeah. of. Yeah. I remember getting uh, absolutely chewed by um, – Actually, it was my good friend's um, dad, and ended up being my baseball coach for shooting a meadowlark. Oh, yeah! Because he stood on that fence post so pretty and chirped, and had this beautiful orange or orange yellow chest, and it was yep. like, man, I'd really like to. That's a really cool bird. I'd like to inspect that thing. And we ended up shooting one of them, and it was like I can remember three of us standing around, like, oh my gosh, look how beautiful this bird is, intricate, and just look at the details. Mm-hmm. And then he yeah. comes out there, he's like, what you guys shoot? We're like, um, we think it's a metal lark. And he's like, you shot a metal lark, la, la, la. I can't believe you did that. I never <laughs> shot another yeah. one. Right. Well, then you saw it. Then you knew exactly what it was. Yep. What What's uh, cool, though, is, is Tyler, that so far what picked up is you had your face in a book. And, and you you were reading while outside, but you were reading about things and, and stories that adventures that people had from being outside. And that that was enough, though their stories about the land was enough to draw you in and connect you to it and ultimately like paved the way for things that you're doing now. It, it was reading about it and just kind of being yeah. out there immersed in it, not necessarily fully engaging from a young age, but, but just being out in it and learning that you can engage in it from other people's stories. That's how, yeah. that's how powerful the land is though. Oh, absolutely. And, and, like a lot of spectating and listening to like people tell stories. So my dad's oldest brother um, has bow hunted. Uncle Thomas has done a lot of bow hunting all over. And uh, he's bow hunted Illinois in the Golden Triangle for a very, very long time. I want to say 27 years. Mm. Wow. And um, always talking to Uncle Thomas and hearing his stories and like just growing up, like just wishing that I could like be a part of that. Um even with, you know, things that limited my ability to do that, which I'm not upset about. It is what it is. It's made me, you know, what I am. But also, like, I I remember when I was in church, um, our church was a very big agriculture. Like, the majority of our membership was rural, and everybody was a farmer. Um, Mm. And I remember we weren't really, you know, we weren't one. But it was in the early nineties when there were just in our little area where I live, there was uh, I think it was 35 dairies at one time Oh wow! before the, uh, zero 200 regulations came in. Uh, I think it was, Oh Lord clean. Was it the clean water act amendment in 96 Clinton did. And it brought in with all the waste rules and the EPA and army Corps um, doing the permit. And then like each state would adopt new rules to it. I believe that's um, correct. And uh, when I remember I was, we would always like, because we weren't like dirt floor poor, but we were, you know, there's four of us. My dad uh, worked manufacturing and then uh, the jobs left. And my mom was a full-time student also teaching at a, a Christian school during the day. And so like when they closed down daddy's plant, he had to go to three jobs and it just, 
things got tighter. Mm-hmm. So there was not a lot we didn't do. But at an early age, it wasn't anything for me to go and, you know, work with some of the folks from our church or go, like, help a farmer out. And, you know, um, grandmama would have projects for me that I'd get paid for or that would come back to it. And I remember um, one of the things that's really just stuck with me and led, like, I think helped steer me down the path Um we were at one of the dairies and daddy was just doing some like basic carpentry work, helping out uh, the gentleman whose dairy it was. And I remember when the the person that was over the permitting and putting in the new infrastructure for the dairies came in and uh, the guy got out and he was very condescending. And um, you could tell by the way he talked and presented himself that he did not like the fact that he was on a dairy farm. He did not like the smell. Mm-hmm. He did not like being there. And um, the gentleman, um, the dairy farmer, we were, he was talking to him, and he was very respectful. And um, Daddy was sitting there, and, like, you know, he was starting – Daddy was starting to stand up because the way the guy was talking uh, to the dairy farmer. And the gentleman finally just – says he's like sir i can't i can't do what you're asking me to do because you're asking me to put a slurry right next to the property line right next to my neighbors mm-hmm. and I, I don't feel okay doing that how about i put it over here in this other spot that meets all your criteria um but it's just going to cost a little bit more money you know so it was just you know to make that slurry pond there was a lot of different things that were going to have to happen and they're going to have to reroute, reroute the way uh, the washout went and all the stuff from the parlor and uh the guy looked at him and he he made a statement and a comment that's always I always hear it um, and it just stuck with me as he said, "You dumb effing hillbillies never listen to anybody and don't know what's good for you." Hmm. Hmm. And I was sitting there because like, you know, obviously I was twelve and my mom probably thinks that was the first time I ever heard someone use that profanity. <laughs> sure, yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, but I just remember like. I remember daddy getting really upset and like, you know, him finally, the farmer turned around to, to everybody that was there and saying, guys, don't worry about it. God will take care of us. We're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And the gen- the EPA dude or whatever he was left and was just a real, he's just a real jerk. And, uh, I remember when we were riding home, you know, daddy was talking about it and he, I just said, you know, daddy, I know what they're wanting to do. Um, it's protect, you know, all these resources, right? The water's everybody's. The air's everybody's. You know, I, I get that, and I understand that. But we're not trying, like, I was like, he's not being a dairy, he's not being a dairy farmer because he hates the environment and he's wanting to destroy this. You know, he's not stand, sitting there going, oh, I'm going to make all this money by extorting the land and do all these horrible things, you know, that's going to be terrible for my neighbors or for future generations. Mm-hmm. And Daddy says, you know, that's a charge a lot of folks, you know, a lot of these farmers have, but they don't get recognized as that because, you know, people were rural people were still viewed as way behind the times or just, you know, a relic of the past. And that that always hung back with me. And I, I remember, like, going to school and just uh, talking to some of the kids whose parents, you know, had, had dairies and had dairy cattle and, you know, we – if you didn't have a dairy, the majority of the folks that ran cattle, they were running, you know, heifer operations to bring in, you know, wet and dry cows. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was just, it was something else. And it, uh, I just remember watching what that did 
on an economic standpoint, but also what it did to our landscape. And uh, now, and at the same time was when they started rolling out the tobacco buyouts. And uh, at one time, the area I live in, the county that's neighboring me, uh, was the largest producer of burley, cure, bur burley tobacco in the state of North Carolina. And uh, that rolled out. And, you know, I just remember watching what happened to that farmland. It became 200 to 300, you know, home, home sites with mm. uh, the side <clears throat> of the mountain paved. Yeah. Um, folks coming in and, you know. Is that because of its of relation to Asheville? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. big time. It's yeah. uh, 20 minutes from Asheville. Yeah. It's, and if it's... You, Go ahead, Tyler. If you, if you really want to get, like, a good time, I don't know if it's a good time, but if you look at, like, Google Earth and you can go back, you know, how they'll do the historic mm -hmm. photos. If you're able to go back, um, and I really wish Farm Service Agency or USDA would do this and take those old flyovers from, like, 1956, 1928 and upload them. And if you look at the land use land cover change for Western North Carolina um, and the amount of impervious surface that's now there, that's now present, Right. It's it's uh it's crazy. Yep. It's mm. insane. Yep. It's drastically changed. That and really that that hits home kind of for me and in my upbringing in the area that I grew up in now is very much the same. It's subdivision, home stacked on top of homes. Um I watched farm by farm by farm that I used to hunt or work with my family transition from hay fields or crop farms or pasture land right into homes and, and developments and um, stormwater facilities and stuff like that. It's like, how did this happen? And, and it, it's crazy because it happens so quickly, though. You know, those, those changes to, um, you know, uh, farming practices or regulations, EPA stuff. And, and your community was very strong farming. And then I'm sure because of those things, very quickly changed into it, into a again, a different land use. Yeah. 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 And it's, uh, it's one of the things too, like going back, like with my, with work now, like knowing what I know now, there was a lot of options for a lot of people to still be able to do what they were doing. But the folks that brought those rules in weren't really given the, the people that were in my position, they weren't giving them the resources to help with it. Mm -hmm. um, but they also weren't really forthcoming with a lot of that information. Right. So that's why I'm like over the top about making sure I know the ins and outs of all the the things with the policies and regulations. Just because, you know, regardless of how people feel about industrial agriculture or anything or, you know, they we use the term industrial in front of things all the time way too much to demonize it and make it evil. Um, but what I find, you know, kind of like what's curious to me is unless you – have the ability to levitate and you can sustain yourself off of hopes and dreams and UV rays. Something was inconvenienced in the natural world and something was extracted for you to be sustained. So mm -hmm. when people start browbeating everybody that's on the landscape that participates or, you know, works the land, it, it's, it's honestly, and I mean, it's just, it comes from a standpoint, in my opinion, it was just that, it's an ignorant view, not ignorant in like you're an idiot, but ignorant in just misinformation, you know, lack of education on the project, on what's going on on the land. Right. Right. So, well, how, 
you kind of hit on it there, kind of, kind of what you do now for a job and, and the passion mm-hmm. that you have um, for that and the way you address that and share information with people. Kind of catch us up to, to present day, Tyler Ross, and, and how you're connected with the land, knowing that backstory and how it's impacted you to this point. So, yeah. Um, so I continued on being as cool as I possibly could until I was 16, <laughs> bought a BB gun to my mom's chagrin, and then a former brother-in-law gave me a 20-gauge New England's mm-hmm. firearm single shot, and yep. that opened up a whole other world. Um, but I started going, and then uh, – you know, keep on, keep on with hunting and fishing and all that stuff. Um, I'll fast forward to where uh, I went to college, and I was at uh, Western Carolina University. I am a proud member of the graduating class of May of 2011 out there from mm-hmm. the Natural Resource Conservation and Management Program. But we have another name when, when it comes to regards to uh, that class, and uh, that was the Flunkies. Interesting. <laughs> or the guy that's over the thing walked into our, our introductory NRM class and just turned around and looked at all of us and said, this is the biggest bunch of flunkies I've ever seen and walked out the class and just left. <laughs> <laughs> and we, that was our first day. And I was like, all right, well, I chose the right major. Yeah. So, um, Here I am. So, yeah. So I was at Western and it's in, Beautiful Cullowee, North Carolina, in Jackson County. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, went there for an extended tour. And when I finally got out, uh, <laughs> I had a Bachelor's of Science in, uh, I, or I have a Bachelor's of Science in Natural Resource Conservation and Management with a concentration in soil and water resources. Cool. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the game plan was I didn't really have one. Like it was just, I wanted to be, I knew that I wanted to do something um, on the landscape somehow, some way to help people um, and also just practice and implement conservation, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so the soil and water program there was accredited. So that's why I stuck that route instead of forestry. And we didn't have a wildlife and the other program was a uh, geospatial information. Right. And my eyes start to like burn out of my head when I have to stare at a computer screen for too long. So <laughs> that was not the way I was supposed to go. But right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. So what that led to was while I was in college, I, uh, I met a couple folks with the local Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation that were instrumental in uh, the reintroduction, this very successful reintroduction of elk in Cataloochee Valley. And now that has, uh, those elk have, another herd that we call the Lefty herd. Um, so there's two, what we call two herds out here because of their reintroduction. Um, and then I worked on, while I was at school, with uh, the Rough Grouse Society a little bit mm-hmm. about rough grouse on uh, a private, I guess, mountain community um, on the Bay, uh, Haywood-Jackson County line and uh, the lack they- of early successional habitat. How are the grouse doing in your in in that part of the country? Uh, if if you if you talk to the grouse hunters here, like I was talking to a gentleman the other day about it, he said uh, a grouse hunter is walking probably eleven miles to shoot four times. Wow! Wow! So he's you know now 
we're starting to see a pretty big rebound with like Woodcock. Like mm-hmm. they're starting to stop back in. Um, and then we were out on some state managed public land the other day, uh, scouting for deer. And I jumped a covey of quail and it was the first time that I had jumped a covey of quail on public land. What, what did the area that you jumped the covey of quail look like? It was prob it was a old field, I guess is the best way to put it. I'd say it was, what they were in was a, a clump of like, there was a clump of honey locust and then there was a, some green briar that was really, 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 really thick going up this hill. Yeah. And then behind the hill was like, uh, they had done like a pollinator wildflower mix going to um, some corn that they had just laid down out there on that, on that piece of public. So yep. it was just really good uh, early successional edge, like mm-hmm. old field style. Like there's a lot of the stuff you don't see out. a lot of in this day and yeah. age. No, not unless you're intentionally putting it there. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was like 12. I have a video of it. Oh, wow. It mm. was, man, it was so cool. And, like, I just, because I, I was hunting a state forest a few years ago, bow hunting, and I watched a covey walk through the woods, which they were going to a new edge. It was around the time that they had shot uh, the Hunger Games at DuPont State Forest. Oh, yeah. A, yeah, that's a permit hunt. And there was an area where they had done some, you know, TSI work and they had done a lot of, put in a lot of early successional habitat or reset, you know, just reset mm-hmm. the clock. And uh, those quails just, they were walking through the woods. Like they were just walking through the woods to go from one piece to the other. Wow. And, Incredible. Yeah. There's only about three or four of them. I was like, man, it's crazy. Huh. But yeah, wow. that was the first, just last week was the first time I'd seen a cubby flush on public land mm. in, in western north carolina that's wow. pretty awesome how so fast forward now you you went through college and now you're getting back to you we're going to kind of transition into your career now what so does day-to-day I, look like so <clears throat> before and i'll just go ahead and tell people how hard it is how hard it was at that time to get a job oh, in the yeah. natural resource realm was ridiculous um that that right there that time so you graduated college 2011 is that what you said yep i graduated in 2010 and so seeing that and and seeing my brother and my friends who were older than me go through that difficulty of the natural resource the conservation wildlife management um not finding jobs um i that's what caused me to shift into the ag world yeah yeah oh no that, that was probably the right call um and if and then and if I'd gone to a a land grant or a school that had ag, I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah. Um, but no, it was it was crazy because I filled out. Oh, I think me and Brittany looked at it the other day. It was like 187 applications between state, federal, um, local wow. governments, and uh, private entities. Wow. For entry level positions and uh, the good people. Um, actually a very good buddy of mine, uh, Charles Dunavant. He's actually, a he was, he was a fellow flunky with me at Western. <laughs> he had been working for a soil and water district down East and he sent me an email and he said, or he texted me and he said, uh, you need to apply. There's a posting for a County near you. And, uh, it was the County to the East of Buncombe. So it was McDowell County. And I applied and, uh, May of 2013, I started working 
as a technician for the McDowell County Soil and Water Conservation District. And uh, it was awesome. I like when I went into it, I was like, okay, I think I know a little bit about what these guys got going on, but it was a whole nother world mm. that I, I, I couldn't even have anticipated. But um, do you want me just to jump into what that's what the yeah, what yeah, soil and water districts look like? Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people are because when you look at government employees, I think. For my brother who works for the U.S. Forest Service, a lot of people would think that, okay, well, U.S. Forest Service, Parks and um, National Park Service, they're all very similar. And there's so many differences. And so yours is a branch of the USDA, correct? So we work as affiliates to that branch. Okay. We are. So we're going to give a a brief history lesson, but it's got to set the stage. All right. Let's hear it. You guys know who Hugh Hammond Bennett is. I believe so. He's the father of soil conservation. Yes. Uh, he started the Soil Conservation Service for the USDA. And that was in, what year was that, 19? 19... Uh, 37, 36, I think 37. it was during the Dust Bowl. Yep. He's the yep. one that opened the doors and said, and here comes Kansas. And uh, Capitol, or allegedly did that at Capitol Hill. Yes. Um, I'm sure he did, because he was cool. <laughs> he, was from, uh, he was from Anson County, North Carolina, uh, a place called Brown Creek. And right there is the oldest and first soil and water conservation district in America is the Brown Creek watershed in North in uh, Anson County, North Carolina. And what, what Dr. Bennett did was he created a federal entity to protect soil, you know, to do the soil conservation, protect water quality and focus on that. But at the same time, he knew, I mean, he was very wise. If you think about looking back now at this, He knew that grassroots, locally-led conservation was the only thing that was going to keep these programs geared to the landscape and to the, you know, to the farmers instead of it doing what a lot of federal programs do, becoming pigeonholed for one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, he actually developed the conservation districts and uh, the, I want to say it was 1939. Somewhere, somewhere in there, they started the soil, water, soil and water conservation districts, or just conservation districts. And uh, North Carolina, um, since it was, you know, Dr. Bennett's home state, started with. Oh, I, wanna, I think there was there was multiple soil and water conservation districts that were based on a watershed. So where I was at, my district would have been the French Broad um, soil and water conservation district, and then there was the Catawba and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, over time. I think it was in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s. Each county has its own district now. So 100 counties in North Carolina, except there's a there's one district that's the uh, Albemarle District, but it's five five counties form one district in the northeast corner of the state. Um, for Quimmins, Choan, and a couple of those other uh, coastal counties, and uh, what, what that means is a soil and water conservation district is a standalone entity of government in our state. Um, I think it's got different – it looks different in different areas, but in North Carolina, it's a standalone entity that is its own – it's its own form of government. Um, I, I have five supervisors. Uh, three are elected and two are appointed by a commission in Raleigh. And those supervisors are my bosses. They tell me what I can't – like what our local – uh, our local policies are, what our local focus is, uh, what our priority watersheds are, 
they set the bill. They're not um, controlled by commissioners. They're not controlled by any other entity. It's all 100% grassroots. Hmm. So, um, so what are you guys doing? Like, what is your day-to-day job? Oh, oh, oh. oh man. I get. I know that changes most likely day-to-day. It does. It gets sporty. So, our charge for my district, where I'm at now, is we are to be conservation technical assistance to residents of the county I'm in, and that can be municipalities, that could be school students that are working on a project. Um, but our job is to utilize cost share programs to protect to minimize soil erosion protect protect water quality and to uh, address resource concerns as deemed necessary by our board so um, cost share programs as they are now started with the food security act of 1985 or the 1985 farm bill under uh o'ronald yep um the north carolina and that started that was in 85 in 1984, the North Carolina Agricultural Cost Share Program started, and a lot of the Farm Bill programs were modeled after that Agricultural Cost Share Program. Gotcha. So, in my office, I administer through the North Carolina Department of Agriculture, the Division of Soil and Water Conservation, we administer a few cost share programs. Um, that are geared towards pretty much agricultural settings. There's some that are non-agricultural, but agricultural settings for water quality, minimizing soil erosion, soil erosion, and uh, another one that's focused on water quantity for drought stuff. Um, but then this is where it comes in with the USDA. The USDA SCS Soil Conservation Service became the Natural Resource Conservation Conservation Service, and their charge was to assist local conservation districts with conservation technical assistance. That's what their charge was. And it still technically is their charge, but they've grown drastically with their programs. Um, So what we do is um, historically we work alongside of them um, administering and helping them put farm bill dollars on the ground for conservation. So equip CRP, CSP, ACP, and all the acronyms you can think of, um, we help the, the USDA put that stuff on the ground. So I think for a listener who's going, whoa, where yeah. what, there's a lot what, of letters, acronyms, no, and all that. What in the world does this guy even do? Um, <laughs> and I think CRP is one of the biggest, most popular ones that people probably have heard of. Yeah. What's your connection to CRP? So CRP in our area is fairly limited um, because it's not it's you know that's that's the that's the conservation reserve program and it's geared towards grasslands and cropland, um, especially in what they call the prairie pothole region. Yes. And uh, where we're at, we're in you know we're in the southern Appalachians. We don't have a whole lot of that. But one practice we do have with that would be like a, a riparian forest buffer. And what that would be is there's a, there'd be a payment or an agreement for 10 to 15 years of essentially having an easement placed on that riparian forest buffer off of that stream to where the landowner would get paid X amount every year to maintain that in accordance with a a conservation plan that was developed for that CRP practice. Um, So like out, out in the Midwest, right? where you guys got a lot of CRP fields. The process is there's a plan developed on how uh, to take that CRP field out of production, 
and leave it 10 to 15 years as wildlife habitat and managed with native grasses and things of that nature. I think you um, said take that take crop field out of production. You meant take, or he, you, you take, said you take that CRP out of production, but you meant take that crop yeah, take field. That crop. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that just completely blew across, blew up my credibility, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it's late at night for people that don't know that we're recording this one later in the night. For us in the Midwest, and you're on East Coast time, so. Yeah. yeah. No, um, so I primarily work with the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, and that is a program that's designed to address resource concerns across the board, from water quality to wildlife habitat, um, pollinators, you know, soil, uh, soil health, um, plant, and, plant and animal health conditions. There's, there's a lot that goes on with that. So primarily with any and all of these programs, it starts – um, with the process of me going out to a landowner, they could contact my office and say, Hey, Tyler, we've got the most common one that I'll use is livestock exclusion. That's yeah. their cattle farmer. And they're like, we've got these cattle accessing the stream. We're noticing that that's, you know, tearing up the stream banks, but it's also, we're worried about what their impact is of their, um, you know, their affluence running into the stream and going down, you know, going downstream and, it's a shared resource. We want to do our part to, you know, protect the resource. So they'll call us. We'll come out, and um, we'll see where the cattle have access to the stream. We'll evaluate the per- place with them, and we'll just – one of the big things I like to do, and I think it should be done, is I like to talk to them about what their goals are because too many times you always hear about folks coming out and, like, saying, well, I'm with the government, and this is what you're going to do. Um, right. Where I work at now, well, where I worked at before, that was a good way to uh, catch a backhand. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> get, you know, have something pulled on you. You know, you don't, you don't talk like that. And the other thing is, what in, in my position with a lot of, a lot of folks I've learned this from is, and I've observed it is, you know, the, these people are wanting to do what's right. And we have tools to help them do that. It's not our land at the end of the day. It's mm-hmm. their land and it's for us to help them find the best ways best best way to balance everything so um they'll call us out there we'll come out there and we'll talk to them about well we'll work with you on a conservation plan and we'll come back with a conservation plan and in that plan we'll have excluded all the streams um from cattle or livestock accessing and if they need to cross the stream we'll put in some type of a stream crossing um but then we'll also provide places for them to water alternative watering sources where I'm at, we have a lot of springs, and we'll develop a lot of springs and put them into watering tanks. Or um, you can drill a well and put in a pressurized water system. So it gets the, the cattle and the livestock to where there's more of a, a buffer in between the edge of that fence and the stream, you know, to where there's more species available, more plants there that will uh, slowly, slowly, you know, minimize the amount of affluence and negative contaminants. Uh, associated with livestock that could enter in the the water body yeah um so that's that's my that's the big one i do where i'm at um and we do that with north carolina ag cost share program and equip but with equip it's so broad like a landowner can call me and say tyler we want to do wildlife habitat here we want to we want to encourage grouse we want to encourage quail we want to restore this stretch of timber back to where it's got more young forest or it's daylighted and it's got places for 
you know, another species of concern we've got up here is the cerulean warbler. So it's not the golden wing, it's the cerulean. Mm-hmm. And um, it's dependent on there being openings within closed canopies of forest systems, which Western North Carolina is the majority of their forests are very close canopy um, for a whole nother reason of moving away from forestry. But I could go on about that for hours, but I won't. Um, but what that's led to is we've had a lot of species like the golden wing warbler and the cerulean warbler, two primary species to point at, that they don't have habitat anymore and their, their you know, populations are de- declining drastically. Um, I believe, Matt, you talked about it in one of your podcasts about the golden wing I warbler. Think it talk- yeah, I talked about the golden wing um Cup, oh gosh, it's been a while now, but yeah. Who for the well, for the listeners on the For Love of Land podcast, we do a uh, plant and animal profile each week on our Habitat Heroes podcast, and you covered the yep. golden wing warbler um, at some point. Yeah, yeah, and it's a really really cool bird, but it's very dependent on edges and early successional habitat, which is kind of left here. And um, the same thing with the cerulean is it's more within a closed canopy forest it needs openings and daylighted areas to go and you know for cover and for brooding and feeding and things like of that nature um so with my cost share programs to the state i can't help a landowner with that but through the farm bill programs the nrcs programs from the usda i can come in and help develop a conservation plan to where we're looking at 30 acres of timber and this timber could be anywhere from you know, 30 to 50 years old, and we can make recommendations for timber stand improvements, prescribed fire, um, brush management, invasive species removal, um, things of that geared towards focusing on wildlife. And it's uh, it's really, really cool to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. You can have your hand in, in a lot of, and impact a lot of different things. Tons of different yeah. resources to be able to protect and look after and uh, with those programs, obviously you're you're educated on it, um, and and have a passion for the land and protecting, enhancing resources, specifically in Western North Carolina. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I'm very very fortunate, and very blessed. It's uh, it's really really cool to go out there and get to work on that landscape every day. Um, it's something else, and I've been very very fortunate with a lot of my background with that gave me like the the knowledge and more of the, the willingness to just always maintain learning and everything is um, I volunteer with uh, QDMA and NWTF and uh, a couple other organizations. But through those two organizations, I met, I've met some folks um, that have been around the block a time or two much longer than I have. And um, they've really just poured into me, invested into me, which is very important, you know, so if you're a, an older or more seasoned or more experienced person that is in this realm and you have the opportunity to pour into someone that's younger than you and has that passion, you know, help them because yeah. uh, it's really, really, I think it's the difference is because I go back to the conversations I had with Mr. Riddle and Mr. Phillips about things. Um, whereas, you know, and it, it keeps me from getting burnt out because when you work for government, it's bureaucracy and you do get to the point of being burnt out really, really bad a lot mm-hmm. um, because you have armchair biologists that call into your office <laughs> yeah. and tell you all the things you're doing wrong. Then you have policymakers that I don't think they've ever had dirt within 10, 10 feet of their fingernails. Yeah. Sure. Um, and then, you know, things of that nature, 
that are they're on up the line, you know, and because of those talks and because of, you know, my faith and the things like that, it, it helps keep me from being burnt out. And um, I've, I've met a lot of guys that and gals that are more seasoned and longer in the tooth than I am at this. And they're just there now to the point to there. They just want to collect a paycheck. Yeah. And, that, and that's not how more resources get managed. It's unfortunately. not. It's really, really not. And uh, yeah. Yep. And I know there's programs like folks, there is red tape. I'm not even going to lie. There is a lot of stuff that's hard to navigate on them. And it's confusing. And like this morning, I spent a lot of time rereading and rescanning back through the farm bill title two for conservation on private lands yeah and that just from from my understanding that's been passed by house and is now on trump's desk correct yep yep and they anticipate that he'll sign it next week yes wow we're close yeah and and i and i encourage listeners to be tuned in over the next couple weeks as we're going to go through that with you um on the habitat podcast uh in the future yeah Yeah. yep yes sir um before we wrap this up we gotta we gotta go with the story from your days of forest (laughs) service right yes yes so during my time at western um one of the jobs that i held is other than being uh the meanest weed eater there was for the catamount (laughs) ground crew the best they've ever seen the best they've ever seen They've never seen anybody take a uh, Red Max to the limit like I could. <laughs> <laughs> what about, a, I bet you were the best privy cleaner, too. Is that what you guys called them out there? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was, uh, it was and, something and else. Probably burnt the most gas just driving around, checking old things, too, didn't you? Yeah. Well, the guys that I worked with in that department, it was amazing how many times we went and checked a trash bag. <laughs> oh, And that's I said funny. to them, I said, the one guy one day I said, Kevin, man, you know, well, there's other stuff we could be doing. He goes, Tyler, one day you're going to understand what it means by it all pays the same. <laughs> oh, so, my goodness. Jeez. Like, right. But so that was one job. The other job I had was uh, we had a great relationship, and I think it still happens uh, with the North Carolina Forest Service out there, um, to where we had what they called the Catamount Crew. And what it was is students in NREM, would go and take their S-130, S-190, L-180. So all their wildland and urban uh, interface training for basic firefighting or basic wildland firefighting. And uh, they would have an opportunity to be on the pickup crew. And um, when the readiness plan for the day would be above a three, um, I had seniority, so I got to go in. Well, this particular day, the readiness plan went from a three to seven in like I want to say three hours. Yellow. And we got called out on a on a spot fire that a contractor had done. He was he had dug this huge hole and was just throwing like he started a fire in the bottom of this huge pit and was just failing timber and like throwing logs in on top of it. Um, and he was at the base of a mountain. Sounds about so, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was yeah. So we got caught out there and it was like a little spot fire and we were fighting one and putting it out. And then we ran back down the hill cause we've seen another one spotting and we had noticed another one was starting to spot up the draw. And, um, they, my ranger told me, he said, Tyler, go grab that rogue hoe. 
because what I was just going to take the Rogo up and I was just going to run up the side of the mountain and just start working on the hand line, you know. And uh, I go turn around and it sounds like a 747 takes off over my head. Mm, that's not a and, good sound uh, to hear. And I turn around and that entire side of the mountain was on fire. And the ranger looks at me and yells, "We need, we need, we need support. We need them to bring the, we need their support in." And, like, everybody, it was just pure pandemonium. Just think, like, a couple of these boys, good as gold. You know, they have great hearts. But when that happened, they, it's like everything, forgot. like, they forgot everything they'd ever learned. And they were, like, just kind of standing there, like, panic. Yeah, they didn't know what to do. And um, so the assistant county ranger was trying to get them going. The smoke chaser and the ranger were trying to, like, get up the mountain to fight. And so they said, Tyler threw me the smoke chasers radio and they said, Tyler, call it in. We need air support. So there may have been a day. I don't know, because I guess I wasn't there that day where they told you what you're supposed to say on the radio. <laughs> no one told me what I was supposed to say on the radio. So I yell, I say, what do I, what do I say? What do I ask for? <laughs> and they just say, hurry it up. It's burning down. <laughs> <laughs> Anything at this point, right? Yeah. So I'm looking around, and everybody's, like, running. I mean, it's like, if you could slow it down, I'm standing there looking up the mountain. They're, you know, the my ranger was it's one of the baddest dudes that's ever walked the face of this earth. He's running up the mountain with a fire rake in one hand, a rogo in the other, and the smoke chaser's right behind him. They're going up there to try and just set in a fire, to get somewhere where they can set in up on this main road and start lighting a back and fire. Mm-hmm. And, uh you know, these other, and then the assistant county rangers, like, over there, like, having to coddle these, you know, 22-year-old boys that are about to, like, are weeping and shaking, and so I'm like, well, it's, I guess there's only one thing I know to do, <laughs> so I hit the button, and I, I say, <laughs> I got to tell them who I am, and I just yell, broken arrow, broken arrow. <laughs> Straight out of We Were Soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> that was all I knew. I figured, you know, you know, you remember in We Were Soldiers where when he said it, the guy like took his glasses <laughs> off and he says, Well, there's no hiding it now. Everybody knows we're in it. That's what I thought that was like a thing, right? Like yeah. everybody knows what broken arrow is. <laughs> arrow means uh, air support. Anybody yeah. anybody who hears this better come call us. Yeah. <laughs> Bring your so, tools, bring everything, <laughs> get here. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was, uh, that was not the right codes. That was not the right call <laughs> or anything. Oh, it's not government approved lingo. <laughs> this guy thinks we're in a movie right now. Yeah. <laughs> the mountain's burning so, down. So what's funny is like, I think some of the federal guys that were listening, they heard it and they just, everyone stopped and then they just started laughing. <laughs> and then um, the the dispatch person heard it and like knew what I was wanting, corrected the call. And then, uh, firefly, the helicopter came in and the C one thirty uh, came in and it was just like, I was like, that was all I was asking for. But yeah, yeah, like, they, someone, they got it. They got the point, of, the point yeah, got across there. I, so I thought I was good to go. Yeah. But when I got back to the incident command tent later that day, I mean, it was a late evening and real shout out real quick to the North Carolina bridge crew. Um, those inmates when they got up to me i hugged every one of them because mm. it was that was a rough day it's a great program um, a lot of speculation on that program by folks but it's actually awesome 
anyway, that's a little side rant, but <laughs> I got back down to the incident command center and, uh, the guy said, are you, are you Tyler? And I said, yeah. He's like, we need to talk to you about radio and these other things. And I may have also, when someone came back and questioned me what I said, I may have used an expletive to describe how intense the situation was. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bit, that's a big no, no. And, um, so we were down there talking and, uh, Thankfully, well, no, this isn't thankfully. This is horrible, actually. The reason I didn't get in as much trouble as I probably should have was because uh, there was a lot more situations and serious things happened on that fire um, that, you know, was pretty pretty exciting and cost a lot of money. So I was kicked to the back burner. Yeah, they didn't care much about the guy who said broken arrow across the radio. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> was Sam no, Elliott on this truck. fire? <laughs> yeah, yeah bro. Who brought Mel and Sam out here? I yeah. wish <laughs> yeah. Sam and his pistol. That's exactly right. Yeah, when I need a rifle, there's going to be plenty of them laying around. <laughs> That's right. Feels like a daggum BB gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. great, oh, great man. Movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, I, I love that story. Um Man, that's so good. I I just think of all the. I would have laughed. Of course, I'm sure under the intensity of of that um, situation, it wasn't as funny. I'm sure everybody had a good laugh later on. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was it was years like years after um, I left and I graduated. I talked to the assistant county ranger who was at that time the county ranger or had been promoted by that point to county ranger, and I, I was talking to him and I was like. Yeah, did no one ever say anything to you about me not using the right language on the radio? And we started talking about it. Him and the smoke chaser were sitting there, and they said we had no idea you said that. And I was like, Whew, well, thank God. <laughs> but the ones, but the ones that did know, were the ones that were at the time the district forester and the regional forester. <laughs> so that is funny. That may have been the reason why I never got one of those North Carolina Forest Service jobs I applied for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing that story. That's so good. Um, yeah. Yeah, broken arrow. Broken that's arrow. Right. Yeah. So. Anyway, well, Matt, you got any final questions or comments? No, I just appreciate you, Tyler, coming on and, and sharing your story, sharing how, uh, you know, over time through your life, you know, land's always been a part of it. And you've, uh, again, you're, you're very passionate about it and sharing that passion. We we're certainly appreciative of that. Well, thank y'all for the opportunity and the outlet. I think there's a lot of opportunity for folks out there that this is great. This is great stuff right here. All right. Next up on the for love of the land podcast, we have our good friend, Mr. Evan Lawler. Lawler. Wow. I, I stumbled over that. <laughs> Evan Lawler. How you doing, Evan? Good, good. How are you guys? We're doing great. Fantastic. Other than stumbling over our words here. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. So, Evan, who are you with? What's your region? All right. Well, my name's Evan Lawler. Uh, I'm a land agent with Mossy Oak Properties, um, Mozark Land and Farm. Our office is in Mountain View, Missouri, uh, right off Highway 60 there. And um, my wife and I uh, work there. Uh, She actually manages the office, and we cover roughly five counties. Right, uh, South Central Missouri. So Ooh, nice. Um, you guys yeah. are right there in that that elk part of the world for Missouri. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not far from there, and uh, yeah, elk, whitetail, turkeys. We got it all. Fantastic. Awesome. So, what uh, are you pretty much just focused right there on land? Do residential? Any commercial stuff, or pretty much all we, land focused? 
we specialize in you know large acreage uh large acreage with homes uh working farms hunting properties recreational properties you know timber tracks uh river properties you name it uh if it's rural real estate we kind of do it if it's got acreage you'll do it yeah Yep. I like it. I heard you really specialize in two acre lots. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> Those yes, are his if, you're, if you're looking if you're looking for, for a lot in town, I'm your guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So what do you got for us today? What's your what's your top listing you want to talk about? Okay, so today I got a uh, listing in Huggins, Missouri, uh, which is for people who don't know where Huggins is, it's uh just north of uh pretty much just north of Mount Grove, uh and a little bit east, a uh, little map dot up there, but uh, not too far. It's on Highway M, and uh, I got 360 acres there um, that has uh, basically it's a big ridge system with two bottoms on each uh, the north and kind of the southeast side, uh, running down there with a couple of uh, creeks, and uh, it's got an old house uh, and dairy barn up in the center of it. It's a it's a working farm. Um, but the, uh, what really has me excited about it is the potential for, uh, a hunting property. Um, I think I showed Matt that place one time and, and, uh, it's the way the fields are all broken up and the ridges run down to the fields. Uh, the potential for food and bedding is pretty, uh, spectacular. It looks like a beautiful, beautiful property. Yeah, it really is. What's, uh, is there any income coming into it right now? Uh, so right now it's being used uh, by a dairy farmer across the road, um, and he's planting it with oats, rye, um, uh, sorghum, and he's using it for feed and to produce feed and bedding for his uh, dairy cows. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, it definitely has got the ability then to grow some crops, whether it is for, you know, income off the property or, you know, like we talked about from a wildlife aspect, sounds like you could do some pretty decent food plots in there sure sure what's the uh at what point did the dairy stop being up op- in, in operation um the dairy that's on the property now i couldn't answer that question it looks like it's been out for quite uh some time okay the, all the, all that's left there is the old dairy barn gotcha uh, with the old concrete you know milk installs and oh all yeah oh yeah so, going way back um yeah. is there is there any fencing on this property yes it's mostly perimeter fenced um i mean pretty good shape it's got some cross fencing um but uh nothing uh crazy because they're not using it right now to pasture cattle or anything there is a a pipe corral up by the house and they're using that for some bulls okay and uh you know just just working working uh the cows in and out do you have a rough estimate on um open acres to timber yeah so uh approximate cleared acres uh there's about 170 open uh, about 120 of that right now is, uh, used for, um, either crop production or hay. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And then, so that leaves uh, about, uh, 190 acres, uh, in timber. Gotcha. That's a really nice balance between open acres and timber acres. And a lot of the timber acres, some of them are ridge top, but then others kind of little, uh, pinches and funnels along creek bottom stuff like that so from the eye the aerial photo it looks like there's opportunities for quite a few pinches and funnels um in conjunction with these uh if you will food plots or ag fields right it's it's really and that's what makes it so appealing to a a whitetail hunter or 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 even a turkey hunter is these 
the open ground is broke up really nice. You have some on the top fields, you know, some in the bottoms and, uh, you know, there's, there's a, just, it's just really a playground, uh, for a, uh, wildlife, you know, management standpoint. Gotcha. So. so you have the ability to go in and be ready for wildlife, or if you want to do a little bit of work, convert it to a uh, working cattle farm from the sounds of it. Is there any timber value? There's a little bit of timber value, probably mostly in block. Um, down along the creeks, uh, there is some walnut, some white oak. Um, gotcha. You know, there, there's a lot of good, uh, you know, acorn producing trees, but as far as timber value, there, there's a little bit there. But yeah, probably uh, it'd be you know, tough to get a logger in to, to log the few acres that actually right. have value. It's got okay. a few, few more years to go on that. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, I, I know Matt sure, sure liked the looks of it on the aerial and I, and I believe when he, when he took the tour, what's the farmhouse? Is that in a, somebody currently living there or is this something that somebody could buy and turn into a hunting cabin and kind of a getaway? Definitely. Uh, it'd make a perfect hunting cabin just as it is right now. Gotcha. There's a farm, there's a farm hand currently living there. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's power to it. The well works great. Um, it would need some, some, uh, TLC to become a, a family home, but it definitely could do that. Okay. Um, or it could be a great place to live while you build your house. But, yeah. uh, yeah. And, What's... and, uh, we haven't, uh, we haven't, uh, given a whole lot of value to it. So, you know, it's, it's a, actually a pretty good deal having that house there. You know, that's kind of one of the appeals, you know, this area really isn't too far from us. It's Texas County, which I th I think is it's one of the, the biggest it's the counties. biggest county yeah. in Missouri. Yep, and, and yeah. I think yes. then has the highest uh, deer harvest as well. Um, most times, at least top three, I think, in the state of Missouri. So you know, this is a a great opportunity for for deer hunter. It sounds like um, not only from the fact of like the area, what's on the property, natural resources, but in this part of the country, it's still pretty feasible feasible to own hunting land and not have to pull an income off of it so like break down like kind of price per acre um on this property so if you break this property down where it's at 360 acres and listing price is 579 579,000 so believe that roughs out to close to 1600 dollars an yep, acre just north of 1600 yeah and yep. and with um you know there's about 40 acres of tillable bottom ground um that's that's tough to find right now for that price. Well, yeah. and, and really our area, there's bottom ground isn't, uh, doesn't come very often really. No. And, and it's kind of nice that it's spread out. You got some on the east side and then some on the west side of the farm. It's like you got two opportunities to really spread some uh, deer and those resources out, which is again, pretty hard to find. Right. Um, one other feature as far as hunting goes that I like is that this property sits up off the road. Um, there's a deeded easement to it off the paved state highway. Uh, you drive down your little gravel driveway uh, back there to the house. And, you know, there's no dirt roads uh, cutting through there. There's no, you know, road frontage on the property. So kind of helps, uh, can kind of help keep your deer uh, safe and help just with a manage from a management standpoint. Is there access from the Northwest corner off that? There is looks not. There is not. Okay. No, no. Yep. So the main access is from the very northeast corner. Right. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Unless you're good friends with your neighbor, you know. Yeah. You there you go. Out, so. Yeah. I, I was looking at the aerial, and it looks like it touches the county road to the northwest. So I was just curious if there was a little cut in right there. No. Hmm. No. 
Well, what yeah. a well-balanced property. Uh, we kind of touched on it, but just quickly review, like, Evan, who do you think would be, like, the ideal kind of consumer for this property? Well, um, really, when I went and listed this property and the more I've been on this property, uh, two people kind of come to mind. Um, someone who's looking for specifically a, a hunting property, you know, a large tract to manage and grow big deer on because this is it's being done right now there actually um the other it'd be someone that wants uh to uh have a working farm and build a nice home there you know kind of kind of your dream home watch your watch your kids grow up there or or, uh you know start your bring your cattle operation there or, or start a cattle operation there and also have you know a little bit of hunting on the side so yeah absolutely and i i i know i remember this correctly but when we were up there on that west side, we saw a pretty good deer. Yes, there's a one of the back fields in that, uh, oh, let's see, it'd be the southeast corner, I believe, or close to there. Um, there's a established alfalfa field there. And, yeah, when we drove up in that field, uh, pretty good. Pretty good three- or four-year-old took off out of there. Mm. Yeah. Well, awesome. Sounds like a, yeah. heck of a heck of a piece of property. How can somebody reach you? Um, you can reach me. Uh, my phone number is 417-353-9057. Call me, text me anytime. Also, you can reach us through our uh, office website, Mozart Land and Farm, um, or email me, first name, or first initial, last name, elawler at mossyoakproperties.com. There you go. There you Fantastic. have it. If you're looking for a, uh, a nice hunting farm or a, a uh, kind of a property to transform into a great cattle operation with some hunting, in the largest county in Missouri, Texas County, at about 1,600 an acre with a house, yep. there's your property. About 30 minutes from Mountain Grove would be uh, probably the closest. you got a super center Walmart there, uh, you know, hospital, everything you need. So. Movie theater, everything you need. Yep, yep. Right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Evan. We sure do appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can help find you a buyer or somebody can reach out and, and be interested in this property. Hey, thanks. Love what you guys are doing and appreciate you guys having me on today. Absolutely, sir. Take care, man. All right. Bye. All right. So this next farm, um, this is almost one of those, like, of course we incorporate some of our own listings. You know. It, but it's not yeah. like we're going to incorporate, for everybody else, we're incorporating their, probably their top listing or the the one that's priced right. And so we're doing the same thing. It's not like we're going to be putting on lots on here, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. this is one that you got a while back that I think is an awesome listing. It's a, it's a super cool farm, and there's two reasons why I love it as a farm. One, because of the land aspect and what um, what it offers to a potential buyer, but two is the relationship now that's been made with the seller himself. Yeah. Super cool guy. Um, I just got that, that personality that's that if you will, is like that local old time farmer, but shoots you straight and knows the land inside and out. Um, and he grew up there, right? He's lived there his whole life. Okay. And so he's got a cool story. Honestly, he, if if he didn't have that just such big Ozark twang and people like wouldn't understand what he was saying on the podcast, he'd be a cool person to interview for a podcast, just because he uh, he has that 
connection. He's like I said, lived there on this farm his whole life, childhood, um, everything. So he he is. It's not too much of a sad story because in total the the farm is um, it's like 880 acres, but he's keeping about roughly 90ish acres to himself. So he's going to stay there pretty much um, on the property. And it's located in southwest Missouri. But guess I should back up before we go all the way uh, into it. But southwest Missouri in Ozark County. Yeah, remember you got ten minutes. Yeah, I know. There's so much to it, though. It's such a cool place. Um, Wasola, Missouri. Um, it's got access off of Highway 95. When we say highway, too, it's kind of perspective. It's it's still a two. Two lane. State highway. Yeah. Yeah. Two-lane road. It's not like a big old interstate or anything, but you've got access off really good um, travel two-lane paved road, and then you've got access off a county road. So in total, 775 acres, 700 of which are open for grazing acres, um, and that is a combination, honestly, of, of forages, uh, predominantly fescue base, but then... 56 acres is Bermuda and <clears throat> which is a warm season grass. Yeah. So he's, he, that's the cool thing about him. Even though he is that like old time farmer who, who's just grown up in the area, he has adapted and changed his mentality and method of grazing over the years. So it is set up right now for rotational grazing setup. Um, so he's got 30 plus packs across the farm. He's got um, miles of underground uh, water lines. He's got, probably 25 different tire waterers, uh, water in every single paddock, whether it is a tire waterer, um, spring, pond, creek, it's loaded. It, and it's, it's, what's uh, his rotation like? So most most of the paddocks are about 20-ish acres. So he will keep basically on, on a full rotation schedule. He will keep uh, – cattle in there and he breaks up the herd because there's a county road that splits the farm yeah so he'll have a, a, a herd on the um, east side which is about 490 acres and then he'll have cattle on excuse me 480 and then another herd t- on the 293 west side of the farm but in general in each paddock he's keeping cows there for two or three days and then moving them okay and so paddock. if somebody wanted to do daily moves Oh, totally. With all the water set up, you could strip it even more. Oh, yeah. You could you could strip out all those e- even more. Even so if you wanted to it. do the high-intensive mob yeah. grazing, you could. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why he, he set it up through programs, cost-share programs, gotcha. um, uh, several years ago, 10 years ago or so. And now it's set up. It's got beautiful long runways to move cattle to and just take them all the way back out basically to the, to the access off the interstate where he's got a beautiful set of highway pins not interstate yep highway beautiful set of working pins um a barn and he's got there's a farmhouse on it and a couple other hay sheds and the cool thing about it part of this farm that is selling um was his original 40 acres and it's got a um a dairy on it so a little dairy uh, milk and parlor and that's where he got started that was his first 40 he he actually bought, expanded from his parents, and then built up just over the years, started to accumulate land, started to accumulate, and uh, just built up this 880-acre farm and is selling 775 of it. Um, and really, when you look at 
the amount of grazing acres, 700 on this place, and it's a total of 775, the opportunity, like the, the value of it increases because it's not like some of these farms in our in our area where it's 600 acres, but you're only grazing 350 of it. Like it's extremely usable mm-hmm. and it's, and it's broken up so well, you can cut hay off of it. Um, he so, leases a couple of So what places, you're describing is a huge cattle operation or the chance I, to turn a, yeah, make I, a major, how many head do you think he could? He's a very conservative guy when yeah. it comes to the number of head that he throws out because he goes every person, every grazer, um, farmer is different and how much pressure he wants to put on a farm because he is from the rotational mindset. He's like, I never want to pressure the farm. I'm always rotating cattle. So he is 100% comfortable in a, well, 2012, a horrible drought here. Yeah. He ran, uh, I think it was, it was 220 cow-calf pairs on the place through a horrible drought and was totally fine. Didn't have to feed hay until his normal time. He doesn't feed till about January 1. Um, feeds for about 45 days and puts them back out and he'll stockpile some fescue. Um, but then the, the cool thing was when he, when he put in that Bermuda grass into the rotation, it's 56 acres. He'll put about a hundred cattle on that 56 acres for three months. And it's broken up across three different paddocks, but just based on that warm season forage and its growth abilities, he's moving and putting a lot of cattle on it and trying because it's, you have to fertilize that a lot. He's wanting high manure count on those yeah. paddocks. So yeah. he's like kind of putting a lot of cattle in there during the summertime frame. But uh, the system works. It's a great, great farm. Well, tell him the best part. Oh, yeah. We'll go back to the, the value aspect of it. Um, so we got 775. 775 listed for 1.699. So... It's and that's just over, just north of 2,000 an acre? It's right at 2,100 an acre. 2,100 an acre, but it has a house on it. Got a house, got multiple springs. Um, the house, if I were to move my wife there, I'd have to be doing some remodeling, to yeah. be honest. Uh, it's an older farmhouse, but yeah. uh, it's definitely functional. Um, got a newer roof. He, he's maintained it. Gotcha. Um, so it... The views on the place are incredible. Like it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful setup. Um, rolling hills. Twenty one hundred an acre, seven seventy five, one point six nine nine. But owner financing too. There is that option, which is super appealing to anybody who's trying to get started um, in owning land, own, starting an operation where cash may be tight. Um, you know, there is the opportunity and the possibility for owner financing on this property. So, which is rare on a big farm yeah. and a cattle farm. Most yeah. most cattle farmers don't have a lot of cash laying around. No. And, you know, it, sometimes loans are tough. Um, so, it, it's a very flexible option for people. Yep. So, showing There's it been a, a lot bunch. of interest Ooh, on it. Tons of interest. Um, still waiting for that right person to, to come along, but showing it to, gosh, people from California, Colorado, Nebraska... Uh, Wyoming, of course, Missouri, Australia, uh, Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is and else. and he had a pretty good deer on it. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. And and that's this is actually the farm that butts up against another one that killed the 207 several yeah. probably five years ago now. Yep. Um. Yep. 
And so there are this farm is really a, a cattle farm. But if you're a guy that's wanting to be cattle but hunt during rifle season, you have that have that option. Well, for sure, yeah. I mean, they they take a lot of deer off that place. Um, he has had a couple just slammers um, on trail camera, and the ponds are spread out enough. He'll he'll get ducks on it. Um, last time I was there, it was about I would say two dozen mallards on on one of the ponds. But it's it's not a hunting farm. This is a cattle ranch. It's a working, operating cattle ranch. And um, someone can come in, move the cattle in, move family in, and and really to kind of take up root. Um, the other cool thing about it is there's two stockyards within about 15 miles of the place. So yeah. you've got option. Um, you're not too far out of town, but you're you're out of town enough that you kind of have that distance, that seclusion. And, and the lake. There's a lake 20 minutes away, maybe? Oh, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 25 minutes. He's a big fisherman. He's actually president of the, the Bass Club on Bull Shoals. Really? And, yeah. And huh. uh, huge fisherman, so he's down at the lake a bunch. And um, so he just, he's at that point where he's looking to slow down um, health-wise, kind of needing to. So he's ideally for him, it, it's a family because he, he just is that personality guy. Um, he'd love to see a family come in and just take oh, it yeah. over, yeah, and just kind of let because he loves he loves the land, he loves that piece of ground. He's like, I want I want someone else to come in and use it the way I used it, raise a family on it. So yeah, awesome. Well, hopefully somebody out there, if they're not interested in a big cattle farm, they might know somebody who's looking to expand a herd or uh, start a ranch. And, and we talked about it, um, with Evans property, you know. With land prices being the way they are in our area, it's still feasible to come here, have an operation, a cattle operation, and pay for pay for ground. Like you you don't have to lease everything like you do in other areas, or you have to supplement it with maybe outside work or or um, you know grain production, whatever it may be. You can still come here, have a ranch, raise a family, and make a living. Yeah. So, and, it, you know, price per acre, value-wise, and the, the the options or the opportunities uh, for success in, in cattle farming, out there right now, this is the the best price per acre for a functioning, working, 100% cattle farm. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, hopefully somebody will, will check it out. Yeah, it's a cool place. Beautiful area. All right. Well, I guess enough about our about our own listing, but on to the next. Yep. All right. Next up, we've got Cody Weeks. Cody, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. What is going on this morning? How are you? <laughs> Great. Good. Good. Nice, cool fall morning. <laughs> Doesn't it feel good outside? It sure, it sure does. It does. Uh, so, Cody, tell us a little bit um, about your real estate business, kind of where you're at and who you're with. Okay. I am uh, I work with United Country Riverways Realty uh, out of Mountain View, Missouri. Um, we cover Howe County, Shannon, Ozark, Douglas. Uh, we've got a pretty big area that we cover. Yeah, that that is a very fitting name, though, because in those counties, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's ex- like how many river systems are there in that area? Well, you've got the North Fork River, you've got Bryant Creek, 
you've got uh, uh, the Current River, uh, Jack's Fork. Um, there's there's several ri- rivers like within you know a thirty mile radius of yeah. my office. And so, like I said, very fitting name. And today you've got a property on one of those rivers to talk about. Um, and that's that's the, such the cool thing about this area is this is this is like if you will I think like epicenter of of Ozarks and recreation in the Ozarks um, so that kind of destination feel for the kind of mountain setting and then all these just beautiful crystal clear uh, rivers for people to enjoy. So what is the property you've got for us today? The property that w- that I'm going to discuss today uh, is called the Flying Art Ranch. Okay. Um, it's 355 acres, and it's got a mile of the North Fork River Oof. that runs through it. The property is located on both sides of that river, so uh, the opportunities there, you know, are, it's just awesome, you know. Um, the majority of it will be uh, wooded, mm-hmm. and currently they use it as a trail riding business, um, and it's got RV hookups. It's got campsites, it's got uh, cabins for rent, bunk houses. Like, so mm. it, it's run as a business. That's um, sweet. Now. Yeah. So really neat place, really neat place. Um, it's got uh, a, ma- a custom-built home on it. It's uh, six bedroom, four, four and a half bathrooms, uh, just up from the river. doesn't have a river view, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of custom woodwork in the main hall, um, deer and turkey all over this place. Oh, I bet, I bet. And this is this Douglas County that it's in? Yes, it is in Douglas County. Man, so it's a, it's funny how and we talk about it all the time on the podcast, but you know, you can look at a piece of land, and there I'm sure there's other properties up and down the the river um, that people are just join enjoying for you know private use but this one they kind of open up to the public if you will and tons of people are able to come in here and enjoy it but then what what are we talking like when you say business like revenue streams like how when is the busy time of the year for for these folks uh basically about nine months out of the year Mm -hmm. um so right now they, they've kind of shut it down. Uh, there are a few RV sites that are still open uh, for folks. And, of course, the bunkhouses that are in the main lodge are still available. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the bunkhouses rent for about 50 bucks a night. Campsites around 25 bucks a night. And then each one of the cabins are... Um, and I would say that they would sleep up to 8 or 10 people. They rent for 125 a night. Man, that ain't bad at all. Not a pretty reasonable price. Um, and, and the cool part about the cabins are, like, basically, you, you look straight down into the river. So oh. it, it's really cool. You really get that kind of, like, uh, Ozark riverfront feel with them. Very peaceful. Mm. Very peaceful. You, what about horses and stables and stuff like that? You, you mentioned trail riding. Was it horse trail riding, like ATV riding? It's it's horse riding. Okay. Um, so they've got several uh, stalls scattered throughout the uh, the campsites. Mm-hmm. I think there's like 150 some horse stalls. Holy cow! You know, and they've got uh, freshwater hydrants right there. You know, at the end of every every um, 
stall and everything so you can water your horses and everything. And and what about its proximity to uh, the Mark Twain National Forest? That's a huge national forest really strung out all across southern Missouri. I would imagine it's probably pretty close. And And, and if so, can you ride off this private ground, 355, and then kind of tour into the National Forest as well? Yes. Um, so you've got Mark Twain National Forest on uh, two sides where it touches there. Now, there's several miles of trails throughout that 355 acres uh, mm-hmm. that they ride horses on now, um, but there are several trails on that Mark Twain National Forest as well. And I don't know exact acreage, but, I mean, I would say it's over 10,000 acres right Whoa. there that it borders. Wow. So you're, so. you're, you're buying or someone could be buying 355 with a business, but then have access to, you know, direct access, private land access to 10,000 acres. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's beautiful, beautiful country down there. Um, Who do you think the buyer is for, for a property like this? Because it is super unique. Like you don't come across uh, trail riding, cabins, rentals, all this stuff, you know, very often, but like, in your head, who, who's the perfect consumer for this? You know, I'd say a middle-aged couple could run away with this. I think the potential there, um, I, I think the sky's the limit. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think something like this could honestly be run year-round. Yeah. Um, possibly for the hunter, you know, do a, a cabin-lease combo and, and let people hunt on the property. Sure. I don't think that's something that's being done right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but several people, I, I guarantee, I, I have guys all the time wanting a hunting lease or something like that. I, I feel like that would be right up their alley. Yeah, absolutely. It would be kind of cool, too, is if, if someone did like a, uh, almost like an upland bird release hunts and stuff on it. You rent it out. They've got the facilities to hold people and feed people on it. Um, you know, Come in for day hunts or half day hunts and house some people. Right. I agree. So the, the lodge actually has a little store, you know, in case people uh, leave home, and forget things. Um, so the store's fully, uh, furnished, all the cabins come fully furnished. Um, the fully, uh, functional commercial kitchen with mm-hmm. all the dishes and stuff. Um, canoes and kayaks, uh, as well as the vehicles to transport, um, those uh, up and down the river. Um, what what kind of floating? Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it's turnkey. Like someone just comes in, just take kind of takes over management and just continues right. with that business. Um, yeah. When you're talking like floats, because these all these rivers are are huge kind of destination places for for people to come in the summertime and do those floats and have that scenic uh, riverway experience in the Ozark, but. Like how how long are these trips? Ten miles, five miles? Do you know? So uh, the property is kind of situated between Hebron Access and Twin Bridges Access. Now Twin Bridges is a private private uh, owned, so you mm-hmm. have to pay to take out there. Obviously, um, I'm sure Flying R Ranch has an agreement with them sure. where people could float to there. It's going to be about a six-hour float, I would nice. say, from Flying R to Twin Bridges. Um, but from Twin Bridges, you have uh, you have Hammond's Mill, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then down from that, you have um, Blair Bridge, which is um, Hammonds and Blair and then Patrick are all public ask- access points. So somebody can take out there um, for free. Right. Sounds like there's a ton of opportunity for extended op, you know, extended float trips, full day deals. And mm-hmm. That's cool. Well, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity for someone, like I said, middle aged to come in uh, if they've ever wanted that outdoor lifestyle and, and own a business in that space. This would be a, an, an ideal one because one, I guess it's already been proven successful, but then two they can increase opportunities throughout a year and, and if they, I guess, run right, increase business too. Absolutely. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, any other closing remarks on this property before we jump to another one? I think that's pretty well it. Um, if anybody has any questions, they can feel free to call me. Yeah. What's, what's, your, what's the best way to contact you? My cell phone number is 417 417- Two five five three eight zero one. Perfect. Well, Cody, certainly appreciate it. Thank you very much for sharing this awesome riverfront property in southern Missouri. Hopefully, uh, it'll pique someone's interest. All right. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. See ya. Bye. Well, there you have it. Some awesome properties, and I'm I'm going to put a little shameless plug just because I we do know Evan Lawler, good friend. Um, but I did tour that property that he reviewed, and I'm, I didn't know which one he was going to talk about this week, but um, that's a good property. We, we did a, a tour on it one day, um, 360 acres there, Texas County, and uh, not that he underplayed it, but I, I, from, from, a, from a habitat standpoint, though, I was like, my wheels were just turning as we were on that property. I was like, man, this really could set up pretty fantastically. Um, so regardless though, I was still ingrained and in tune, like as he was talking about it, replaying, because that's just the way my mind works. I love land. That's it. I hope you guys had the same feeling there with that property and all the other ones that the other agents reviewed. And I hope they enjoyed the interview with Tyler. I know we went on for a lot longer than we expected. Uh, but it is kind of interesting on his take. I didn't realize he wasn't born on a farm. Like, kind of just worked his way to it. As as much as we've gotten to know Tyler and and know his dedication and knowledge of the land, I had no idea either. And no. it's unique, though, too. I think I talked about it in the podcast, but, like, how how he got associated with the land. And just through reading, like, his his imagination went there and a couple bad experiences that's true too that led him to kind of the position that he's in now basically yeah managing land in the right way so hats off to uh to you tyler for basically overcoming that broken arrow oh gosh (laughs) hilarious yeah it really is funny so if you don't know that movie that's wind talkers no no we we were soldiers soldiers, that's it (laughs) we will ride in a battle and this will be our horse (laughs) Yep. yep good movie um yeah, that was definitely from Broken Arrow, or from We, we Were, were Soldiers. soldiers. Yep. Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow. Um, so I hope, hopefully everybody enjoyed that. And uh, check out the uh, the coming podcast with, I know it's all things land, this one, the For Love of Land podcast, but the Habitat Heroes podcast in ne- the, following. Next, the following week. Yes. So when you're listening to this, the next week with Dr. Dwayne Estes mm-hmm. of... 
Southeastern Grasslands Initiative is going to be on there, and it's not really hunting related. It's native landscapes. I, yeah, we are we are going to take that step aside. I'm sure we'll talk about how game species are integrated into that that system, but um, as with that name, we're going to be talking grasslands in the southeast pre-settlement, how the landscape has drastically changed, and then what that group is doing to bring back and hopefully restore some of that native landscape throughout the southeast so if you're a land lover 90 percent of the grasslands in the southeast are gone gosh it breaks my heart so um definitely tune into that one you you will love it all right well guys please leave us a review on itunes yep or our facebook page land and legacy and uh we sure do appreciate it and we will – you got something else you want to add? Say any questions regarding those <clears throat> properties or property in general. Oh, yeah. Um, if you're please. looking for property somewhere that's a hunting hunting property, if you're, you're – or even, a, I guess, any property. Any property. Don't matter. Any property. Um, shoot us a email, info at landandlegacy.tv, and hopefully we can help you. Absolutely. We want to help you find your dream farm because we want to find our dream farm. And that's <laughs> yeah. the, that's the vision, right? Well, and that's the thing. I, I what I love about this. The this longer podcast, we get to look for other people's dream farm, the more closer we get to looking at our dream farm. Well, I I love the the Even connections don't. though that land brings to relationship, um, and we want to make those connections with land agents and those who are looking for land across the country. We want to meet you. We want to talk with you. Um, bring you on the podcast, whatever it is. And, and and this is just one way of doing that. So, again, we appreciate you listening. If you have any questions, info at landlegacy.tv. Let us know. Catch us next week.